счастья нету. Он и сам себя ругает. Как я быть, эх, ну, как я ему служить, да служить ей, нельзя быть веселому, что зверь не даги. Поеколоконник на теплые Episode 66 of the Cult Matt and Mark Cult Film Review Podcast. I'm Matt. I'm Mark. I'm Jean. And make sure to uh, visit us at our blog at cultfilmreview.blogspot.com or shoot us an email at cultfilmreview at gmail.com. So this is a, a podcast first for us. We have uh, Mark's significant other, Jean, on uh, the microphone today with us. So oh, I thought it would be a good idea to include Jean because she's the one who... Uh First show, Dare Su Usla, to me some years ago. So, Gene. One of the reasons I probably like it. Gene, big fan of the Dare Su Usla. Big fan of the Kurosawa? Absolutely. Yeah, that's oh, one really? of my favorite Kurosawa films. Oh, what's your, what's your second? What's your other, like, top two, three, four, five? Oh, Rashomon. Um, Have not seen. Yeah, and uh, um, Ikaru. Oh, like the, you mean the, the, the salmon roast sushi? I love Ikuru. Is that, no, I'm, that's wrong, right? Okay. That's right, wrong. Let's, let's <laughs> yeah, I haven't really seen much in the way of uh, Kurosawa films, so uh, I've never really made the point of seeing everything. I think I saw Seven Samurai once, but it didn't really affect me like this movie does, maybe because this movie has a real straightforward storyline. Uh, how about Ran or Throne of Blood, Gene? You seen those two? No, I, I actually I have not, so I mean... I just sort of accidentally saw um, Dersu Uzula back around 1980, probably. Wow. And, uh, well, almost when it came out. That's right. That's right. Uh, and uh, that was my introduction to Kurosawa. And Well, the, back then, I think films, they circulated around for quite a while once, once they were released. They didn't make a million prints and then destroy them right away. Right. Uh, yeah, the print would would travel around and get a lot of showing, especially probably a smaller international film like Dersu Uzla. I mean, it did win Best Foreign Film in like '76 or something. Seventy, yeah, that would have been the right time. Maybe it was '75. I'm not sure what year. Right. So you would guess it probably went on the, uh, you know, went around to the major cities to show in their art house theaters. All right, let me get into the uh, plot rundown. It's not a overly complicated plot. Uh, in 1902, a Russian army expedition is assigned to explore Siberia under the command of Captain Vladimir Arsenev. He befriends the Goldie, a.k.a. Nana. And maybe Goldie's like a derogatory term for uh, one of those folks. Is that right? Well, it's tough to say. I think the, the Nanai or whatever is just just means native. Okay. But it is, it's a group of uh, people in the central Siberia. They're not... They're not Mongols. I think they're north. north Seem more like a, they're, a, they're a separate uh, social 
you know, they're a separate uh, ethnic group. Maybe like related closely to the Koreans. I kind of got that impression because that's kind of the closest big nationality to that chunk of Siberia. Well, well, I mean, they're over. They're not really in Siberia. They're over in the Far East province. Uh, yeah. In the uh, Usuri River Basin. And I think the the Goldie aren't really from there. I think that uh, he's sort of, uh, you know, uh, Dersu's under uh, self-imposed. Um, he's taken a leave from his name. A leave of absence from. Uh, yeah. So he's yeah. sort of a, he's sort of an expat, sort of a loner in this river valley, a ways away from his his actual social group. Right. Uh, so he befriends the Goldie uh, hunter, Dersu Uzla, invites him to guide the explorers through the Stark Forest up to Konka Lake. Along their journey, Arsenev discovers that Dersu Uzla is a man with a beautiful soul, and they become close friends. When his assignment ends, Dersu Uzla says goodbye to Arsenev. Arsenev. In 1907, Captain Arsenev, or Capitan, as he's called over and over again, is assigned to another expedition at the Isuri River when he meets Dersu Uzla in the forest. The lonely hunter joins his team and guides the group. However, he is older and has problems with his vision, and cap- And the captain invites Dersu Uzla to live with his family in Kabarovsk. I got that name wrong. City. But the old man does not adapt to the urban lifestyle and decides to return to the forest. In 1910, the captain is called to Korvovskia to identify the body of a man who has call who is who has his calling card and might be Dersu, and that's kind of it. It's fairly straightforward. Yeah, it is a pretty straightforward story. Um, I mean, it's these are all real characters. It's based off a uh, rather popular uh, memoir by Vladimir Arsenyev, uh, who was a, a pretty big figure and a bit of a naturalist in the far east of uh, the Soviet Republic. So he was basically, the, he was like a cartographer. So he was out surveying pretty much uh, the, uh, I mean, I, there was Siberia a big, there's a big is river, huge. There's a big river valley there, yeah. It's sort of uh, along the uh, north of... Uh, Vladivostok. Uh, Vladivostok. That's where uh, the city of uh, Khabarovsk yeah. is, right. where he's based out of. And yeah, it's, I think they were just, I think the... People in Moscow were interested in exactly what the hell they had possession of. Yeah, which is strange. Especially I, with the Trans-Siberian Railway, which doesn't that end in Vladivostok? Yeah, it, 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 Vladivostok's the terminus. It's always weird, I guess, how Russia expanded out to the Pacific Ocean. I never quite understood that history. It seems I don't know, uh, the, sto- I don't know the story at all. I mean, had they just come under the dominion of this Far East province by the time... When this movie opens in 1902, I, I didn't look into it. I was looking into some, like, quick and dirty Russian-Siberian history, and I don't think they'd actually made inroads out there until, like, the 1600s or something. So they'd actually, uh, you know, started exploring that area. I, I I don't know why they didn't run into a ton of opposition with uh, the Chinese. They did run into opposition with the Japanese over territories out there, but they were able to claim such a huge swath of territory that's so rich in natural resource so easily. And uh, it's like, well, okay, well, we have this. Let's go out and, you know, check it out and document it and figure out what we got here and uh, not really run into a lot of opposition doing so. It's one of the most sparsely populated areas in the world. So, I mean, I think it was just probably strictly a nomadic type peoples. And so very low density of 
of peoples, uh, not really uh, any power centers to be reckoned with. So once you mechanized, it was probably pretty easy to uh, place your dominion over those lands. I mean, I was looking at the sort of the weather weather in Vladivostok, and you know, it's just it's just west of the Japanese islands, and you would think it'd be, and it's not far north of the uh, Korean Peninsula. You'd expect it to be rather mild there, but it doesn't get above freezing for like the three months of the winter. There's something about the weather patterns there that just makes that land harsh. It's probably, probably like a lot of air masses coming out of Siberia that just kind of stall there or something. You know, who knows? Um, so, I mean, the, the Han Chinese probably just didn't have power centers that far north, maybe because you just couldn't have big cities uh, resident there before industrialization. Yeah, and uh, they went on to explore and stake claim to Alaska, which still is even much more bizarre. You know, I think uh, I read something where Captain Bering spent a total of eight hours on in Alaska. You know, that's like he was sick and dying, and he was like, "Oh, fucking, I'm turning around. This place sucks. You know, it's horrible weather. I'm out of here." It does. It does sort of suck, especially back in the day. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a vast chunk of territory where nobody not a lot of folks live and uh you know but ton and ton of resources and all that good stuff and so that's kind of where the film takes place um and uh dare sue well, is- i guess i guess the main thing is about this sort of uh new world meets old world it was sort of that i mean what's kurosawa's idea with this movie i think he's sort of maybe to show modernization and maybe the way it's changing the landscape around it i mean mm-hmm. he, he starts really strongly in the first scene that's basically the whole the rest of the movie is told in a huge flashback he starts out where with the the captain visiting Dersu's grave and it's already been the forest around it's already been chopped down and turned into a yeah, uh, it's like a, a railroad new, depot uh, something yeah i mean as the railroad moves its way out there people move with it and the the nature just sort of disappears and is mastered by man and the captain is a, plays a pivotal role in that whole process he's he's basically the agent of change he's the you know he's the hand of change before the body gets there and it's sort of weird that they he has such a friendship with nature but he's also sort of the, the bringer he's the doomsayer coming out in front of the flood yeah, Gene, did you did you have something there? Oh, I'm I'm listening to you guys. <laughs> okay, <all> right. <laughs> I'll pipe up anytime. Uh, yeah, we're in a Mark and I are in a bit of a pattern of doing this, so we don't uh, we need to make sure that uh, if you have something well, you to guys, say, <laughs> you guys do you guys do well together. So. <laughs> but I guess I just like I like the simple story of sort of love, you know. Uh, uh, between two men, you know, hot, 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 manly love. love. Yeah. <laughs> well. I mean, there's a great scene in this movie. I mean, this relationship between Dersu and the captain where, uh, it's not the hand 19- job scene, is it? It didn't. Uh, no, it comes oh, before God. that. Uh, no. It happens in, uh, <laughs> okay. the 1907. Talking when about he, Dersu. When he first, when he first, he meets Dersu again, uh, in 1907. Uh, where they're sort of talking around a, they're away from the campfire and just sort of reminiscing between themselves around a, I think they're around a, uh, a lantern or a small campfire and the rest of the men sort of start singing the sort of romantic song. I'm oh, should sure we get the there at the beginning? Is that the no, no, or? that's actually, that's a, that, that's them sing. They sing a couple of, they sing a few songs. Well, which that's I, after their second Which I like, meeting. but after their second meeting, uh, back in, uh, this is when they, 
the beginning was when the captain says goodbye to Dare Sue in uh, 1902. Yeah, he just decides he has to head out. He's not going to go into town and do anything. He's just like, ah, oh, all right, I'll just head out over the ice uh, ice field here. And uh, well, that's Dare Sue. He sort of he sort of put himself out in the wild. He made himself a mountain man, right? Because I think he was so broken. Because he talks a bit about the story of his wife and child. Apparently, small pa- smallpox ravaged the uh, eastern natives as much as it rat rat ravaged the uh western north american natives as well so a bit of that. yeah you know i've never thought about that but you could imagine that uh as they as as a modern man was pushing into the uh i mean it, the the western man was pushing into the new world it was all, all probably all, all also pushing on those sort of nomadic northern peoples as well yeah, I'm and sure, they didn't have any. I'm sure sort of they were probably heavily destroyed as well. And what weren't destroyed probably got uh, uh, taken up by Stalin to, for cannon fodder during uh, World War II. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's in a whole other uh, chapter of history of Siberia. There, it's a, but I just sort of like the I like the sad character of Dersu. So uh, for our listener, Dersu's wife and child succumbed to smallpox and i assume the village that he came from as well so he's just turned into a uh nomadic wander of uh kind of the far east and a hunter although he hunts sable i guess he does that for some pocket change to buy more ammo and things uh and clothes and whatnot yeah yeah but he is a subsistence hunter he is a subsistence hunter so, but I don't think he's not really interested in getting. He's just interested in going on, and I think he enjoys being by himself out out with his own thoughts. You sort of see him reflected in the character of the old Chinese that you see. Oh yeah, in, that was in interesting. Sort of the middle yeah. of the movie, which is a really neat scene with that that very old hermit man. Well, and, he was sixty three, I think. Well, he looked pretty looked pretty old. <laughs> he's old for Siberian folks. Don't live long. He's old for <laughs> living out in the woods. Exactly. But, uh, you know, he had a little bit of a, I think he was supposed to be a little bit of an echo of Dare Sue uh, that yeah. we see later in the film. It's sort of a weird storyline. I mean, somehow this old Chinese man was wronged at some point, like decades in the past by his Yeah, brother, it was like a love triangle a or something. And so he was he like, like uh, he was like an emo Chinese. He just is like, fuck it, I'm going to go out and brood in the woods. And, uh, and he stuck with it. It was pretty tremendous. But it's sort of a haunting scene where he's sitting there uh, lost in his own thoughts. And it's like he's freezing ass cold. Jesus. That's, I mean, come on. Get, get inside. But, uh, build a fire. And you can tell Dare Sue sort of understands his plight as he sort of understands what's going through his head and explains it to the captain yeah uh Mm -hmm. yeah exactly well it's interesting psychology you know i think about uh the uh you know the hermit mentality there was a pbs show called like alone in the wilderness or one man's wilderness or something about some retired machinist who moved to alaska had a log cabin in the middle of nowhere and uh filmed himself and i guess during the pbs pledge drives they uh show that and uh then you have to wait every 20 minutes why two uh very earnest but boring pbs uh folks get on there and extort you for more money for uh pledge drives and then they you know show it to you again. oh man those pbs what is yeah we're undergoing right television? one right now it's npr is fucking brutal 
terrible. Oh, well, you know, at least they make some pertinent programming on the radio NPR stations. I'll tell you, the PBS television station, there's, I'm pretty sure all I see is infomercials on there for, like, self-help books. <laughs> Have you noticed that? Well, then there's, there's the odd... health guru talking about, no, I don't you know, notice what that. you should eat and all sorts of Hormones. bullshit. Oh, just a bunch of bullshit. And I'm pretty there's sure like, they're selling shit. All I watch on PBS is, like, Frontline. There's the Lair News Hour, which... I got to be in the weird right mood. I got to be so burnt out of CNN. You know, there's got to be like a big news event where I just need like some sort of a straightforward, boring discussion, you know. So I'll watch the Lair News Hour. Nova, which is occasionally it's not okay. that It's not really that good. Usually it's so dumbed down and over-dramatized. Uh, and then really Rick hard. Steves is just kind of the the... You know, he's the he's the go to man for those pledge drives. They always get you know that pot's not going to buy itself, man. That guy goes through a lot of it. Probably (laughs) does. Yeah. So uh, anyway, um, but yeah, this show, One Man's Wilderness, I think it was just about some guy that you know goes and lives in the wilderness. He seemed like a pretty nice dude, sort of like Dare Sue. You know, just living off the land. I think you know, plane had come in like once or twice a year and dump off some dried goods, and that would be it. So. didn't seem like he had any real tragedy in his past. So I don't, the whole Yukon hermit, you know, kind of wander in the wilderness by yourself. I think it has for dudes has sort of like a, a noble, um, attraction, but it's the execution. I think that, uh, proves the hardest and you have to have the right psychology to do it. So like you have to have some trauma. I think like dare Sue, Obviously, has some trauma, you know, and something that keeps him out there. Like he just, if he's with people, then it reminds him of maybe what he lost and it's just too much to take. And so he gets along better in in sort of an unemotional environment where maybe survival being a more immediate issue uh, dials down the volume of all your other problems, which makes sense. You know, I can see that. So... And, uh, and, you know, just, I like the relationship between him and the, the, there's sort of a, the captain has a crew of, uh, basically like enlisted men as muscle on his little expedition and how, especially in the beginning, how crude their understanding of nature is. I mean, I guess it's a story we've heard a million times before. Uh, maybe we'll hear it, hear it next week when we talk about the movie aliens where people go into a harsh environment, not really understanding everything and sort of can get some amazing foreshadowing you're having there, Mark. Mm. Amazing. Well, I can see the future. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, I went, I really like the, uh, the red, the blonde guy with the red beard in the first half of the movie. That reminds you. Some, some of those, some of those Russian guys, they just cracked me up. They're so macho. And, uh, I just imagine what would happen to them once World War One got going. Wasn't yeah, Russia, they're probably all Russia dead. Involved? Yeah, yeah. If they didn't get killed in World War One, they definitely got killed in WW two. Uh, yeah, if, yeah. If they made it that long, uh, they may not have made it that long. Yeah, they were pulling. Uh, I think Stalin pretty much pulled everybody from all corners of the country to go fight that war. I remember seeing some pictures of a Stalingrad battlefield, like old black and white photos, you know, from nineteen forty two, forty three, and there's like some. Mongol looking dudes, you know, shooting at Germans. So, yeah, I mean, he could just keep throwing a vast continent worth of humanity at uh, the German problem. And uh, it's kind of how he won that war. So, yeah. And uh, I guess, you know, and there's also just some nice shots of the scenery. I guess Kurosawa always wanted to go shoot with the Russians. 
Okay. And uh, and they shoot it. I guess it was shot on location in that river basin, there north of uh, Vladivostok. Okay. So I think you get some. I mean, all the all the lighting's natural, except for some of the night scenes. I guess about the campfire, you can see where they use artificial lighting. But uh, I mean, I guess back in '75, they probably could have done it with all natural lighting. But uh, I guess Kurosawa was a little bit of an old school filmmaker by this time. What I liked about the movie. And uh, to be honest, it was like a two and a half hour long movie. I pop it in, you know, it's kind of like uh, old timey film quality. Yeah, you see that great Russian logo at the beginning? Oh, the I saw that. And then the it's old statue that cracked me up. Yeah. And then I knew it was subtitled and I'm like, oh, fuck Mark. You know, I just <laughs> like, oh, dude, that's like, I, I don't know. I watched it in two stages. I couldn't sit down and watch the whole thing straight through just because of schedule reasons. Well, it works but, out pretty well if you stop at the end of 1902. And I stopped right at the end of the winter scene where they uh, got off the lake okay. and they Oh, yeah, yeah, friends. that's a great yeah. scene. Um, and so, anyway, I was like, oh, I don't know if I'm in the mood for this because this is like, it's not candy, this film. I mean, it, you know, it takes, uh, it takes, uh, you got to read it, you know, subtitled. So that's always a little bit of a, a mental Okay, Matt, drop. I'm on pins and needles waiting to hear your... Um how you enjoyed the movie i'm telling i'm i'm i i'm steering that direction um and so i was like oh man okay and but uh i started watching it you know i had to invest some time in it and uh what i dug what kind of hit it for me is i'm a huge uh junkie for survival shows like on the discovery channel and only a few of them there's like i don't like survivor that show on abc is terrible but there's like uh, Survivor Man. Never seen it. I don't watch it. There's like Survivor Man with Les Stroud. He's like this whiny Canadian who films himself. Like did uh, he di- did he get, did he die of exposure yet? <laughs> well, <laughs> no. Les Stroud. His whole gimmick was he didn't have a film crew. Like all the other Survivor guys have like a film crew with them. So he was literally out there by himself for like seven or eight days, and he went all over the world. But he was really whiny and Canadian. And it just kind of grated on me, you know. It was like, oh, bitching about how he had to pack all his camera gear around, and I don't know. And he's like, oh, I mean, I'm so hungry. A, I watched anyway, a few episodes. Like, it seems like he just goes out there and starves for ten days, and then gets picked up. Yeah, uh, Survivor Man <laughs> is, and and well, he does his own score for the show. That's his big other big claim. Not my most favorite Survivor dude uh, on mm-hmm. reality shows. And then there's uh, Bear Grylls, who uh, did Man vs Wild. And Bear yeah, Grylls nicely is produced. It's nicely produced, but really, when you're out there surviving in the wilderness, you shouldn't be doing backflips over waterfalls. I'm thinking you probably want to minimize your exposure to accident as much as possible. So it's a little unrealistic. Well, what I can't figure out is how does he manage to whip his dick out in every episode? Yeah, he's either peeing into a bucket to drink it. Uh, I saw him peeing into a snake skin that he had made so he could. Yeah, I call it like his pea snake. So he had like this. Yeah, he like, wrapped it around his neck so it would keep him his neck wet, so it would keep evaporating. And then he drank the pee later on. And then he's always peeing on his hand. He's just peeing everywhere and drinking it, and fucking gross. <laughs> and and it's just ridiculous. And uh, I was okay with it for a while because he's like a British dude, and you know, it's mildly entertaining. Um, but the show that I've really honed in on, which is actually probably closer to the whole Dersu experience, is uh, called Dual Survival. It's on Discovery. And the whole gimmick is is like there's this uh, 
primitive survival expert, and his name's Cody Lundeen, and I think he's out of Arizona. He walks around barefoot. Like, he literally doesn't use any shoes uh, in all the episodes. He has, like, shorts, no, 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 uh, no shoes. And uh, then he's always paired with, like, a military special operations survival dude. And so you get the nice kind of give and take between survival methods. But Cody reminded me of Dare Sue because he's very into, uh, you know, feeling the the nature around him and sort of adapting to it. And uh, uh, all the, the men. Yeah. Well, the the conflict between them between and, and maybe I'm uh, raising the, the level of that show to more than it deserves but uh uh it, it's like a little bit of the dersu versus the soviet army kind of survival tactics where he's like uh one of the special operations guys started drinking his own pee and cody was just shaking his head he's just like what the fuck are you doing and it's like Why oh man it's, it's like it's just it's like you know he goes people survive in the wilderness not because of that but despite that whole peeing and drinking a business <laughs> you, you know um, and so he's much more efficient with, I guess, uh, like he doesn't run after wild boars and tries to kill him. He, uh, you know, takes easy game and he knows his limits and, uh, it's a good show, but, uh, I'm pretty sure I saw Bear Grylls jump on the back of a wild boar. At yeah. One point. That's uh, fuck anyway, stab it with his knife. But anyway, back to my point was, is then I was watching the, the whole, you know, I was getting into the movie and the lake scene, which I think is one of the more interesting scenes because it has well, a nice you know, tension to it. It does. You know, the thing is it has a lot of cuts, which is, I think, uh, you know, I mean, this was made back in 75 and people didn't cut as much in films, but that scene has a real modern cut rate to it. There's well, a lot it's of sort that. of trying to well, get this set up for the listener. The basically the whole gist is, is that uh, the captain wants to go out and survey like a frozen lake, I guess a headwater of the river or something like that. And it's getting late in the day and it's frozen over and it's sort of kind of a uh, empty landscape. There's really no bearings out there. And um, they get out there and then Dersu and his like simple uh, pigeon Russian or whatever. He says like me scared captain or something like that. And uh, we, you know, it's like we die or something. He said something real simple. And um, then they had to make basically like a little shelter out there. And the captain didn't know what he was doing. He was just like cut all this grass and put it in a big pile. And he actually had like in, in you know, in his mind what he was going to do is he use that survey instrument tripod for a, uh, I guess, kind of like a teepee stand and then kind of lash the, the grass around it and all that good stuff. And uh, yeah. I don't know. I kind of enjoyed that because it was sort of like um, – you know, like uh, he knew like sort of the first elements of survival is to get out of the elements, you know, where you're going to die. And uh, yeah, yeah, it really, it really it had a nice tension to it in a movie that has a sort of an older pace to it that yeah. you have to sort of I mean, movies, I mean, the older the movies get, the more you have to be willing to understand how filmmaking has changed over time and be OK with that. Not not because it, I think it'd be pretty easy to get, especially, you know these films to get um, impatient with them because of the time they take. Well, and that was kind of when I was starting to watch this. So I was like, Oh, the pacing it's old. It's old timey pacing on this movie. It and is, I was it's old, old school pacing. Yeah. And I was getting a little bit sort of, you know, 
bummed out about that but it it added you know it did the tension right on and sort of uh you know and then you you knew that some tragedy was gonna befall dare sue because of the you know flash forward there at the be, uh, beginning of the movie but uh you know you wanted to kind of see how it was gonna arise you know what was gonna be his downfall and all that kind of stuff so you know, there was also the along. nice tension scene of the uh river rafting scene oh yeah that was maybe good you'd get a kick out of it because of its similarities to uh uh, Gary, the wrath of God. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, uh, basically Dersu had to tell him what to do while well, he was like freezing to death out in the river. He was shouting at him <laughs> at the shoreline. You know, this so. movie reminded me of a, I think a show all three of us have seen the long way around where they oh, sort yeah. of get cut out, caught out in this Eastern Russian oh, yeah. mucky spring weather. And you just imagine if it's not frozen, it's just two feet deep of mud just imagine right. do you see those guys mucking through that shit oh you, you see, see that the with the horse job. scene you see that with the mm-hmm. horse scene with the uh you know the, the 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 horses are like knee deep in the mud and they're trudging through it and it's just this horrible mu- muddy thaw that's uh you know, and you understand why there's not many people living out there yeah there's probably a reason for that despite the uh the climate tends to really shove people south on the planet uh, or north depending you know what hemisphere you're in so this movie also you could tell it was basically a film memoir in certain ways one element was how there's some groups there's sort of events that just sort of happen it's like, a lot of it's a series of events like a memoir is sure i mean there's the overall storyline of the of man versus nature and uh and a friendship between two men from different backgrounds and uh you know coming to terms with your own mortality but there's also just it's almost just a little some adventures. There's the one where they uh, run run into those, uh, and you actually never see them. The uh, oh, those fucking hand house Chinese man. There's nothing worse than a fucking group of hand house Chinese. Those fuckers <laughs> can't be trusted. Tell you. And and then you run into like some sort of local militia. Uh, they were another. Well. I thought they were another ethnic group. They were the good. Well, I think guys. they're maybe the natives people. The, the oh. people that really lived around there. It seemed like it seemed like a militia. That was going after basically these highway robbers, which were the the Chinese. They found yeah. those guys in the river. Just sort of you know little little stories. I thought I thought it just gave gave me the flavor of the place really well. And you know I often wonder it'd be fun to go visit Vladivostok and check out that area. Uh, I've thought about once taking the Trans Siberian Railway. Uh, I think there's some complications with getting visas and such that that make it a challenge to do that i mean you can do anything you know um if you if well, you could just you, go over you, to vladivostok well you got to get a visa Maybe. to get into russia they don't oh. they don't just let you get in you know with your passport so you have to and it's a pain in the ass to get a visa they're For they're russia, really, really oh yeah they're really um it's the right word uh suspicious of anybody who wants to uh, visit that country who, uh, mm. And a lot of it has to do with um, Putin's really paranoid about uh, journalists uh, getting in there and uh, exposing things about Russia. So a lot of their visa questions are sort of tailored to that. Um, I, I can't. I can't imagine Putin's all that worried about Vladivostok. In well, no, it's just Russia provinces. getting into Russia, and Russia's like a terribly corrupt society. Uh, has a huge problems with like alcohol and hooliganism. Um, I don't know. I think it, it's to me, it just seems a little dicey. 
I, I think it would be awesome to try to travel across uh, Russia on, a, on on rail, but I think sort of the uh, reality of traveling in Russia, I think, would really get me down. I, I don't think I'd be into it. Um, so I thought about it once, but uh, yeah, Vladivostok. I don't know. I, Russia always kind of seems a little bit dilapidated and overgrown. Every picture I've seen of it always seems a little bit, uh, you know, well, the, crumbling. The eastern provinces are sort of in uh, regressive, where a lot of population is being lost out of the east. Like I was looking at, there's actually a town north of Vladivostok named named after uh, the captain, Vladimir Arsenyev. And oh, just, really? It's been shedding population about 10,000 every decade for the last few decades. Well, you know, a lot of those sort of resource-based communities that, you know, live off of natural resources tend to uh, wither in, in sort of modernization. Uh, happened well, you see century. populations are pulled towards uh, economic centers. Like, you know, why is the population of Wyoming so s- small? Because yeah. it's just like it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's a bunch of scrubland out in the middle of nowhere. You only they, need so many people. There is uh, some deranged state legislator there. I think Wyoming is about 90% deranged state legislators. You know, it's where Dick Cheney's from. <laughs> what do you expect? Uh, uh, but I, uh, I, I, you know, I went to school out in Wyoming. And Wyoming is uh, like no place on earth. And that's not really a compliment. It's <laughs> it's kind of fact. And uh, uh, they're losing folks quite a bit. I think uh, on the order about two to 3,000 people a year are leaving Wyoming because uh, there ain't much to do there, but, you know, mine coal, uh, work on an oil derrick. Uh, Kill fags. Hey, now, there's only two guys. And they were just robbing him. It had nothing to do with, you know. Oh, really? Was that the sexuality. case? They did rob him, but uh, I'm just, oh. I'm, 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 never mind. I'm being an apologist. Uh, it's very on PC of me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so this legislator, I think like a rep, state rep or something in Cheyenne was like, hey, I know a good idea. So we have two to 3,000 people leaving the state every year, and we have two to 3,000 people graduating from the university every year. Obviously, those people are heading to like Colorado or somewhere to make a buck. So why don't we just shut down the university, and then we'll stop all reason for people to leave. And anyway. Hold it. So people still come to the state with no university. They just won't leave. They'll be too dumb to get jobs elsewhere was the sort of the uh, the intonation on that. And it's like, oh, you'd be too stupid to find a decent-paying job outside of the state, so you'll be stuck here to go work on a cattle ranch for the rest of your life. And uh, I mean, know. it's weird that those states don't realize that just by the very nature, they are subsidized by the population centers in the country. I mean, it's sort yeah. of the whole point. I mean, they, well, they need to be. Right, exactly. Or we turn into the European Union, but that's a whole other, you know, that's a whole other argument there. Anyway, interesting story about uh, um, Arsenyev. He died, you know, back like in 1930, and uh, I guess his wife, a few years later, was uh, implicated in some sort of anti-Soviet republic, uh, sort of. Um, I don't know. I think it was just Stalin going around killing people. And yeah, Stalin was summer, some summarily executed sometime in the in the thirties. I think there was something I was reading, just skimming Far East history, where Stalin took all the Koreans that you know, because Koreans an ethnicity as well as a nationality that were living in that part of Russia, 
and put them on trains to Uzbekistan, like 200,000 of them. And like most all of them died, like, cause it was basically like a concentration camp train across, you know, the Asian steppes. I don't know. All that, Stalin's body count so high, all those kind of little stories, you know, where 200,000, hundreds of thousands of people die and some horrific travesty of, uh, you know, Soviet governorship. Uh, and, you know, that shit happened all the time. I just, uh, you know, uh, I forget how many people they suspect Stalin did away with. 20, 30 million, something like that. Probably. I guess that's why all the Russian people I meet are sort of morose in a weird, <laughs> in a weird way. There's just uh, sort of a darkness about them. Yeah, I guess. Uh, I don't know. I, I always see Russians when they're, uh, you know, tourists in Europe, and they just drive me fucking nuts. Uh, tourists in Europe? Like when you were in France skiing? When I'm really – well, no, no, no. When I'm – well, like in, in the U.K. or France, when I see them, like you always can spot a Russian because they dress terribly. I don't know what the deal is. I mean there's I think the, they wear some pretty smart trainer outfits. There's like the whole tracksuit thing, which I thought was just like a mobster thing, but I don't know why they're all wearing that shit. And when they're not wearing that, they're wearing like, like kind of terrible T-shirts. The dudes are. And all their women, like the young ones, dress like strippers. I can't figure and, it out. I'm sorry. So where's where's the problem here? Just like, uh, well, like when we were in London, uh, the 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 Russians are really into taking like pictures of their girlfriends or wives doing sexy poses in front of monuments, and it's just really weird. Like we were at this old ruined abbey, and there was this group of Russians, and and like this one guy was basically directing his stripper looking girlfriend to like do sexy poses in front of the cathedrals and stuff and it's just bizarre it's like what the fuck are they doing so i don't know I, I, it's my stereotype for russians russians abroad there's nothing that. like cathedral and to bring mind to bring to mind sex there was problem. yeah exactly there's this one and then there was this one guy he, he was like nearly ran into us but he was walking backwards while his uh russian girlfriend i assume is was uh walking towards him like catwalk posing, you know, like sexy-like in front of Buckingham Palace. It was really it was really surreal. <laughs> so, I don't well, know. I guess it's just cultural differences. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> anyway, I think I read somewhere that they're like rated the number one worst tourist uh, right next to Germans uh, abroad. As, uh, yeah, so tourist-wise, well, to they're the, pretty bad. But uh, Back to the movie. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's okay. Um, we're not really saying a whole lot about the film, but well, let's uh, get into it. Let's you, let's get into it here and and really, uh, you know, talk about the relationship. Did, did did Rose watch the film? I thought this was a movie no. she might have liked. She doesn't it. no because she does a lot of knitting, and so uh, subtitled movies sort of work her. work against the 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 knitting part. So. There was a there was an there was English dub on the DVD. What? Yeah. Okay. I, I didn't listen. I listened to it just for a second to see it, that it was oh. there. <coughs> Missed um, it. But how about the scene with uh, Dare Sue in the city? I think that's, that's one of the more interesting parts of the film. It's right at the end. It's only like the last 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. is uh, sort of him, him butting up against the rules of the city and sort of how it was a sort of a hellish purgatory for him. Yeah. He couldn't uh, shoot within the city limits, couldn't start a fire in the park. 
Uh, couldn't chop down a tree in the park. Couldn't, couldn't chop down couldn't a tree Couldn't put a park. tent outside and live in a tent. I liked when he gets mad at the uh, waterman who's bringing water. Oh, for him. selling water. <laughs> he keeps yeah. telling him he's a bad man. Right, right. When he's actually just selling the service, he's not technically selling the water. Selling I mean, that's, the water, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's kind of what I was uh, taking away from that. But, you know, uh, you get sort of the fish out of water like you got with the Soviet soldiers, right? They're sort of ignorant of the wilderness, and Dersu's ignorant of urban life. And uh, um, He's not really willing to accept it. I mean, He's too old to accept it. And the captain are willing to accept the the forest on its terms and gain what knowledge it can from the locals, but he's not willing to accept the city on its terms. Well, and maybe part of that it's because the wilderness can kill you a lot faster than a city can. And so there's an immediate respect that you have. So if you're out there wandering and you find somebody who's been out there and um, surviving, seeming thriving, then uh, I think your uh, prejudice uh, goes away pretty quickly for adopting those kind of uh, tactics as opposed to living in the city where that stuff's not so clear cut, you know? Yeah, you're right. I mean, in the forest, it's the arbiter of what to do and what not to do is life and death. In the city, it, the arbiter is a series of complicated, complicated social agreements. Yeah. That carry various uh, weights and, uh, and repercussions, which are probably more complicated. I mean, sort of saying, you know, how complicated that, uh, you know, the rules we live our lives by. I mean, every once in a while I think about it. Just think about, I mean, we both travel around a bit, you know, getting to and from work and maybe taking trips to places or, uh, you know, little vacations or whatnot. And we ever really think, you feel like you're out in the open going places and that you sort of got the worlds open in front of you for you to wander around at will. But when you ever really think about where can I really go? I mean, the world's a rather large place, but what places can I physically put my being into that's 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 uh, allowed? Like, I look outside my front door, I can't really hang out in my neighbor's yard, forty, you know, fifty feet on either side of me. I can't uh, you, go across yeah. the street and hang out at the country club. That's right. right? Not allowed. I mean, in fact, there's very few places I can actually <laughs> let myself be in at any given time, even though I sort of feel like I'm moving around freely. In fact, I'm incredibly fenced in by a series of all sorts of agreements. Like when you go to a place of business, you can roam around there as long as you're doing business, but you couldn't put a comfy chair in there and hang out in the frozen food aisle just for a couple hours. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are things we accept and you know, we, we don't, it's, you don't it's, think about it. Well, it's one of those things. If you don't think about it, it's like, uh, I don't know. I've never, been on mushrooms or taken acid gene maybe you have some i don't know you had the child of that uh generation i know mark I and i are too I'm, anx- I'm, anxious for that kind of couple of shrooms back in the day yeah i'd go crazy and end up uh, like uh, jumping off a building yeah we would uh <laughs> we would be on the news mark and i and uh anyway but uh i've heard that you start picking apart reality like all these accepted rules um you concentrate on and you're like that doesn't make any fucking sense you know why and then that like totally sends in a, in some kind of weird spiral like uh why do women paint their fingernails that doesn't make any sense you know and i think uh maybe dare sue was on sort of a mushroom trip there in the city uh questioning all this stuff that uh 
civilized city folk don't question in such a way that got them in trouble. Yeah, it's tough to internalize all those rules. And uh, I think that the the rules are more clear cut in the forest. And I guess maybe that's why some people, you're talking about people who want to go out and be hermits. Maybe that's part of it. They want well, to just throw off the yoke of all these agreements. Yeah, I don't know. Did you ever see uh, Alone in the Wilderness? I think it was Alone in the Wilderness. I mean, you mean Into the Wild? Into the Wild. Yeah, Into the Wild. Yeah, yeah I thought that was pretty good. I guess, well, I'm not sure exactly what that kid was going for. I think that's sort of the big question of that film. Uh, you know, it but really, It doesn't really answer it for you. I think there's an idea that if you get out into sort of a survival situation like willingly put yourself in a survival situation. And you could argue that that's the case for a lot of like daredevil type of uh, folks, you know, who are um, jumping out of planes or, you know, doing those kind of things that uh, doing diving and scuba diving. Yeah. Uh, extreme skiing, all that good stuff is that you uh, kind of are able to shed some of the, uh, I guess, issues that really are just sort of anxious worry, you know, first world problems and kind of just like extract out what the meaning of life is more that you're able to center yourself or know a little bit more about yourself by putting yourself in sort of an immediate situation. And, uh, you know, there's an attraction to that. Making the arbitrator of your, uh, behavior survival. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, social agreement, everything you do, has uh, a consequence, like an immediate consequence. And uh, there's a simplicity to that that I think is attractive. And uh, I can see, you know, Dare Sue lives that. And, um, you know, there's there's uh, a simplicity to these sort of immediate issues that don't clutter his life up or uh, they all make sense. They make sense to him. They make sense to people around him. There's nothing that he no rules that he has to live by that don't make any sense to anybody in the world. They all make sense. They make natural sense. Make natural sense, yeah. They make sense on their face. Right. You understand their Sue as much as you understand any animal living in the forest. Uh, What they do is not a mystery, you know. It's uh, fairly uh, straightforward, so. um, And he had spirituality to him. I remember the scene... um, um, was it by a body of water? He was um, sort of carving a stick. Well, oh, his little Y stick. There was one night he was remembering his his wife, right? Right, and his family. It was sort of a tribute a tribute to them, and I, I guess I really enjoyed some of those quieter scenes. Um, well, then he has the well, he has the tiger freakout scene where he uh, well shoots at the tiger, he, which is sort of the. Uh, patriarch of the forest you gather uh spirit wise you know the the tiger and i think he even gives it a name like kanga or something has some sort yeah, of yeah it's uh, conga i think those are actually there's actually some it's part of the animist religion of the goldie people uh, okay yeah so i think it's actually based off that that actual thing well and then there's the interesting quote at the end that the captain makes about him the old fear of the forest coming back uh and haunting him in some way um, that 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 was sort of encapsulated in that tiger incident. Even though the captain was pretty sure he didn't hurt the tiger, 
Um, but it, well, I don't think that was the case. I think the idea was that he may have shot him, but the tiger will run anyways until it dies. So right. we were really unclear. What, I don't think it was meant, even though it didn't look like he was pointing at the tiger in the film. I think maybe we were supposed to lead to believe that he could have given a killing blow to the tiger. So what was that? Be a long time away. What was that comment then? What was the old fear that he had of the forest? Uh, I didn't. I didn't quite understand that. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's uh, maybe it's the captain making light of his his animist religion. No, I don't think he was making light of it, or maybe he was just maybe simplifying it. it was just, uh, I think it was just, you know, like his eyes go, right? His eyes yeah. go, and uh, it's a panic situation for Dare Sue. Um, well, his eyes are everything. Panicked. He's going to die if he doesn't have his eyes. And maybe that's the old fear of the forest, that uh, if yeah. you lose some physical capacity in any sense, like you can't walk or you lose your eyes. He's going to be the weak member of the of the of the you know, the group and he's going to get picked off by the predators. And he knows well, and maybe that's the old fear because definitely dare Sue. Ex- he definitely uh, lets people know that he's afraid of something. Like when he's out on the lake, he says, I'm scared. You know, he doesn't have any problem uh, talking about that. So, yeah, he's really honest, which is one nice aspect of his character. Like when he's talking about the, he gets robbed one time and he says, he just doesn't understand why somebody would rob him. So, um, as far as reviews go, I had trouble finding reviews of this film. All right, well, I couldn't find much in the way of uh, reviews in the moment. Nothing from Ebert on Dare Suzla. But I did find a review from the New York Times, October 5th, 76 by a Richard Eater. It's a little bit of a mixed review, uh, but I think he makes some good points. He says, uh, the first half of this movie is delicate and haunting, uh, and the second half is numb and ponderous. Um, Mm. He then goes to speculate that since this was a a Russian-Japanese co-production, that uh, he says the production may have been partitioned unequally between the two halves of this film. I don't know if I know, I don't know if I really got that feeling from the movie. Uh, it it felt a little bit like it was kind of repeating. I don't know if it was. I mean, I uh, thought the 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 idea of the death of Dersu to be a really important part of the story. Well, though. yeah, that was it. That seemed. I don't know. It seemed like he's almost arguing against the length. But uh, go ahead. Possibly. Um. Anyways, he says the movie is a, a Tolstoyan uh, parable about the encounter of the blind and deaf power of civilization with the perceiving and magical helplessness of nature. I'm not sure what, I'm not sure why I use the word helplessness. I understand perceiving and magical, but I don't see where nature was helpless. If that's exemplified in the persona of dare Sue, certainly not helpless in the forest. It doesn't totally make sense. He does talk a little bit about the captain. We never talked about. It. He's almost an otherworldly character. He says, uh, and the, "Very handsome." I oh, he's a, He's got a hell of a mustache. You'd, to, you'd be combing the ladies out of yeah. that thing for weeks. Um, he says, um, "The captain, a sensitive intermediary between the brutal confidence of the soldier surveyors and the mystical trapper." You know, there's sort of a. 
I mean, I think this movie, in a way, I think they were sort of reviving the memory of uh, Arseniev at the time. And they were sort of wanting to make a sort of a glowing representation of the man. Well, he doesn't say a lot. He kind of speaks a lot through his actions and sort of his uh, decorum and restraint. Uh, mm-hmm. He's not really a verbal character. And really that well, he kind seems of... like almost the perfect man. He understands nature and civilization, and he can meter them both out. Yeah. He can be a bridge. He's sort of almost a, almost a, a, almost an archetype of an individual. Well, he, maybe that that was sort of the propaganda they were trying to generate. Well, he seems maybe to that's lack. Who he was. He lacks uh, prejudice, which is uh, probably rare for people back then. You know, so he doesn't I have. He was, I think he was a bit of a naturalist, and he was just really interested in nature. Yeah, yeah. Um, sort of a John Muir of the far east of Russia. Um. So, anyways, and they talk about that scene that Gene talked about. Um, where the captain finds uh, Dersu by himself. Uh, he says, the captain finds Dersu one night broken with grief by the fire. He is remembering his family dead of smallpox, and he has no barrier against remembered pain, as if it is re- as real as a tree falling upon him. I just sort of, you were talking about the honesty of Dersu. You know? yeah. yeah. He just sort of feels things very openly. Doesn't doesn't try. To yeah, he doesn't. Uh, he doesn't uh, disguise any machismo, or he doesn't, he doesn't try, try to, cover to repress up. things either. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, let me see here, and then he goes to sort of lambast the second half. Uh, he says in the conclusion, the episodes in the second part go on endlessly, loosely, and obviously. They lack the revelations of the winter scenes. And they do little but belabor at length the points already made. Yeah, I think he says it wrecks the film's balance and makes its achievements dull. I don't think it wrecks the film's balance. Um, Who is this guy? (laughs) Gene doesn't like it. Let's go. Let's go find uh, Richard Eater's grave and pee on it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, fuck Richard Eater. Uh, We we piss on your grave. Uh, Whatever. Uh, It doesn't seem like he's. Is he kind of? Well, when Dersu takes a turn, he gets uh, what does he say? Combative and morose. I think there's after morose, the ti- yeah, the tiger incident. Uh, I don't know if he's is he criticizing that turn of the movie or what is he exactly criticizing? There's a lot going on in that second half. I just don't. know. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he says we don't. Maybe he's talking about the sort of idea that this is a film memoir and he doesn't need all these different little episodes. Maybe he feels yeah. like he's getting preached at a little bit. Maybe he's tired of it. I don't know. Yeah, be I don't know. Is this you know, movie a little preachy? A little preachy? I don't know. I think it's just, you know, I've been trying to think about, I mean, some movies it's really easy to talk about and others it's not so easy to talk about. And this movie sort of strikes me as one that's less easy to talk about. We were talking about art a few episodes ago and you made the good point about uh, the idea of you don't need to be able to verbalize your appreciation of a work of art. Correct. That's not a necessary part of its appreciation. And this is a sort of movie, there's just a, a feeling I get from this movie. There's a sense, you know, of connection with these characters and sort of, I feel a brotherhood with them that it's not, it's not, I just can't tear it apart. It does. Well, I can't I would tear s- it apart into its, its bits. It just, it affects me sort of as a whole. I'd say it's a, a story that really that's, like. that's, that's pretty common. It's a pretty common trope 
Uh, it's sort of the, uh, oh, you know, two characters finding common ground who have absolutely no common background. You know, that's, uh, I don't know, these sort of, uh, what do you call them? Fish out of water friendships. Well, not, yeah. Yeah, like, um, yeah, I mean, maybe so. It's just, I just, there's something about the way it's told by Kurosawa here that it just affects me more than, than something other that I might feel is trite. And I don't get that feeling here. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's simple. It doesn't, the, the tragedies aren't huge, I guess, and they're not, uh, melodramatic, which is nice. I kind of like that. They're, um, fairly straightforward. I mean, it's a memoir, so it doesn't have to be overly dramatic, you know, but, um, I don't know. I don't know why he kind of he doesn't really explain why he uh he uh, uh really didn't care for that second half so much. Uh, other than I think maybe it ran long and it seemed a little preachy to him. That's the only thing I can really gather from Mr. Richard Edwards' review. This is just one of those movies that I have trouble verbalizing and I just like it. Uh so, so are we are we done? Because I wanted to bring up something else that yeah, uh, is sort it. of tangential. So for it's about uh, actually uh, surviving in the uh, Russian wilderness. Something I came across, this incident I'd never heard of, called the Dyatlov Pass Incident. Um, the Dyatlov Pass Incident resulted in the deaths of nine ski hikers in northern Ural Mountains on the night of February 2nd, 1959. It happened on the east shoulder of Mount can't pronounce it <laughs> anyway uh the lack of eyewitnesses has inspired much speculation um they all died so that yeah i already mentioned that soviet investigators determined only that a compelling natural force quote unquote had caused the deaths access to the area was barred by skiers uh barred for skiers and other adventures for three years after the incident the chronology of incidents remains unclear because of lack of survivors in this is the weird part investigators at the time determined that the hikers tore open their tent from within departing barefoot into heavy snow and a temperature of minus 22 degrees fahrenheit although the corpses showed no signs of struggle two victims had fractured skulls two had broken ribs and one was missing her tongue and I think clothing-wise, uh, some had socks on, but a few were naked. It's weird. I, it's a long Wikipedia article, but uh, I was reading it. What was it called again? It's called the Dyatlov Pass Incident, D-Y-A-T-L-O-V. And hmm. the, 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 the conspiracy is, is that maybe there was some Russian nuclear testing up there because there's some radiation burns on some of these people. Hmm. Uh yeah, paradox. Oh, well, and they think a few died of hypothermia because there's a thing called paradoxical undressing where you're actually freezing to death, but you take off all your clothes because you think you're too hot or something like that. Well, we saw um, the incident in uh, uh, a few couple of years ago in uh, the mountains of uh, uh, Oregon with uh, I think a guy that worked for Yahoo or something. Oh like yeah, he went down Google a, Maps. Yeah, he went down a bad road and got stuck in the snow. Yeah, with his family. And he ended up, they found him sort of undressed where he died after hiking for a couple of days. Forensic radiation tests had shown highly high doses of radioactive contamination on the clothes of a few victims. Just real weird shit. So, like, there's a whole thing. Was it the Soviet cover-up? Anyway, so if you're looking for weird news, go hit that one up. But uh, Yeah, that's a weird one. Dare Sue would not have been able to handle that situation, I think. Whatever it was, yeah. There were so. maybe maybe there were a bunch of tigers out there. 
<laughs> All right. I think uh, I think we're done. Any Gene? Any so last next week comments? Well, I was gonna see if Gene had anything else to say. I just love those two guys. They're oh, Sue okay. and the Capitan. I okay. That's all. All right. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to be doing a James Cameron film, the classic Aliens. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing that. It should be good, yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to talking about it. <laughs> wow. All right. Inside joke there. All right. So, uh, till next week. Das Vidanya. Das Vidanya.